Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Dana Al Kurd, assistant professor at the Doha Institute and researcher at the Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies. Dana has written a number of things pertaining to authoritarianism, uh, Palestine, and the Middle East more broadly, and I'm really looking forward to talking with her about her book and about her research more broadly. So, Dana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to touching on a few things, but uh, first I should say Mabruk, the book is out, I believe. Yes, yes, in the UK. It's, it's uh, finally in the flesh. <laughs> oh, very exciting. So can you just quickly introduce the book for us? So basically, um, the book looks at um, two uh, basic relationships. The first is the impact of inter- international involvement on the Palestinian Authority's political development and how, the inter- how particular forms of international involvement have led to uh, certain dynamics with the PA um, in the sense that it's led to a divergence between the PA and its Palestinian public, and it's led to the PA becoming more authoritarian. The second uh, argument uh, and relationship that the uh, book explores is how that increasing authoritarianism impacted Palestinian society. Um, so I look at basically dynamics of the impact of authoritarianism on uh, polarization and the impact of authoritarianism. What I'd like to do, Dana, just before we go deeper into it, it's, it strikes me that, that this is quite a personal book as a Palestinian. So can we, uh, can we just delve deeper into your own background to get to the point of, of understanding the book? Is that okay? Yeah, of course, yeah. Fantastic. So, I, I guess this is going to be a, a slightly stupid question, but what was it that provoked this interest in, in politics and political life? Um, so, I, I was uh, born in Jerusalem, and, um, you know, it's it's very difficult for a Palestinian, especially born in Jerusalem, to to be, you know, not interested in political life as sure. it impacted my upbringing and it impacted my ability to go home and uh, when when... My family left Palestine. It impacted, um, you know, my access to the rest of my family. And so it's, it's, you know, I've always kind of lived in this dynamic. Um, but I think that, so, so that's what, you know, brought me to political science. But I think that the reason I wanted to work on this project and write this book um, is because when I entered into grad school and I started thinking about my own research agenda, I really wanted to do something I felt could shed light on um, dynamics that affect the Palestinian people in a way that might help in some way. Um, sure. And, you know, I wanted my risk to be impactful. Sure. And, and that's commendable. And, and, yeah, I can certainly see see why. Having spent time in, in Jerusalem, I've seen and spoken to, to Jerusalemites like yourself who've told me the, the, the frustrations and the, the anger at... At conditions there, so I guess it's easy to see. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's easy to see how that that political situation would prompt an interest. So, yeah, yeah. when you um, when you realised this, you went to to university. Did you study political science at university? Uh, yes, and my uh, at the undergraduate level, I studied uh, political science. I double majored in political science and economics. Right. Um, with uh, a view to getting into research. So I also uh, minored in quantitative social science and 
um, you know, got, dabbled a little bit in undergraduate research. Right. So you knew at that point that research was the career for you. Um, I mean, I, I explored a little bit. I was exploring the policy world a little bit, but I also went to school in the United States. And so um, my explorations of the policy world left me feeling that as a Palestinian and with my particular um you know, value systems and objectives, I, I, I wouldn't get much traction in the policy world. Right. Okay. Well, maybe we can delve into that in a little bit. But um, if I may, can we talk a little bit about your, your time in Jerusalem before your family left and went, um, went over to the States? Can you tell me a little bit about your, your recollections from that time, please? Uh, yeah. I, uh, I remember that Jerusalem was always... Um, kind of on edge even back then. I, I, I guess I should, I don't mind dating myself. I'm, I was born in 1990. Okay. And, um, so I, even though like Oslo came when I was young, um, it still was very much kind of a volatile, uh, environment. And I witnessed, um, you know, clashes and I remember feeling very terrified and what increased that, uh, level of it's, you know terror for me as a, as a child is the fact that I was going back and forth to Palestine. I would live in Palestine for a year. I'd go away for a few months. I'd come back. Like it was just kind of kind of constant back and forth because my father was pursuing a PhD in Japan. Right. Um, so I was able to see what life looked like for normal societies, and then I'd come home and it would be a shock to my system. Um. And then um, we were kind of getting ready, like my, you know, my immediate family was kind of dabbling with the idea of, of immigrating for good, um, for economic reasons, when the Second Intifada happened. Right. And so I witnessed a little bit of that on the ground. I, I was, you know, under curfew. Um, I, I remember, you know, the, the, the soldiers, uh, you know, chasing after... Uh, boys in our neighborhood and things like this. Um, but I also witnessed it from afar. So I would say that that, that moment when I, I think I was nine or, or 10, um, that moment really politicized me. Um, the, and, and it's, it's, I've been kind of on this path since. Yeah. And I mean, it's so, so personal, so, so emotive, I guess, to have gone through that and to, to have taken all of that on board in terms of what it is that you've you've been doing with your your own research, I mean it's it's incredibly powerful. Uh, let let's go back to to your education though. Let let's talk about your your masters and your PhD. So you did it at the same institution, I believe. Yes, um, I, I was accepted into a PhD program without an MA. So Congratulations, that's quite me. exciting. Uh, <laughs> not sure it's exciting or. Uh, I don't know. I, I have some uh, second thoughts about that, <laughs> that path. But basically, I got the master's, you know, in in progress to my PhD. So I wrote the master's thesis as I was going through the PhD program. Sure. And then the the PhD is that is that what um, what the book is? Is that that the thrust of the book? Uh, the thrust of the book is based on the dissertation, but um, I of course you know added uh, uh, new sections and, and of course. more research to the book. Of course. So, what what I'm fascinated in, Dana, is that 
you've done the book, which I want to talk about in detail, but you've also done this really interesting set of, of reflections in, in articles on on polarization and mobilization more broadly and and not just with regard to um, to the Palestinians, but focusing on Jordan and and Jerusalem in particular. So there's this this interesting variety in what it is that you've been doing. So can we just let, let's go into the book first, and then we'll go into the other aspects of of your work. So okay. we touched on the book briefly, but I think we should introduce it properly now. So the book is called "Polarized and Demobilized: Legacies of Authoritarianism in Palestine," and it's published okay. by Hearst and OUP um, out in the UK now, and and in the United States and beyond in January, I believe. Yes, January. Fantastic. So. It's this really personal project. It's a project based on on your PhD, but also with this normative agenda of trying to to make a difference, I guess. In some way, uh, you know, shed light on the dynamics that to a you know to a public eye seems futile or seems like you know um, irredeemable to yeah. explain how how Palestinians got to where they are um, and perhaps find some ways out of the futility sure so what's the starting point then i mean when you study palestinian history you can go back centuries but of course that that makes it incredibly difficult for for rigorous analysis so where where is your starting point here so um i i look at basically modern palestinian politics um uh so i do some comparisons uh between the pre-oslo period I don't go uh, beyond the first intifada uh, in, in in that direction. Right. Um, and then I compare the post Oslo period, the first post Oslo period, and then what I call basically the consolidation of the Palestinian Authority, which was after the parliamentary elections of two thousand six. So okay. it's kind of a comparison across time periods of modern Palestinian politics, and uh, particularly uh, post Oslo Palestinian politics. Okay. And what are the questions that are driving this comparative analysis then? So basically just, you know, in the most basic non-academic jargon, um, I was interested to see how this society, Palestinian society, that despite, you know, years of uh, repressive uh, occupation um, and, and, and ethnic cleansing and all of the things that the Palestinian society faced was able to very effectively mobilize during the first intifada um, and able to garner concessions from this very strong state, despite everything, despite a break the bones policy, despite, you know, the, 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 the loss of livelihood and, and life, they still were able to organize in such an effective manner. And Palestinian society was, was so cohesive and, and um, you know, uh, collective action was so impactful. Um, how did this society that had this ability go from that to not being able to challenge the occupation anymore, not being able to collect, you know, uh, coordinate uh, with each other anymore, to being mm. so polarized and fragmented and broken? And so that was the thrust of it. Once that, you know, that's the thrust of my the research. I mean, it's not really a research question, but kind of like the the, the puzzle that I had in mind. Yeah. Um, then the research question and its you know sub questions flowed from that. So, 
obviously first um, I, I had to look at, well, there's this international dimension. How did the international dimension, how did that affect how the Palestinian Authority operated? And so there's a section on the book in that. Um, and then the second aspect is, okay, well, now we know why the Palestinian Authority looks the way it does. And of course, I'm not the first person to, to write about this, but plenty of, of, of great work has been done on the Palestinian Authority. Um, but, you know, amalgamating all of that and, and talking about, you know, how, how the Palestinian Authority looks looks now. Okay, so then how does that translate to what we're seeing on the ground? How does that translate to how Palestinian society functions today? Right. And so I tried to make these links um, and, and show that Palestinians have really been put in a bind um, and much of it is, is, is not, you know, uh, their fault or their lack of political will. Yeah. I mean, it strikes me that w- with your book and, and, and with other work on Palestine, it strikes me that Palestinians are caught within a range of different and often concurrent structural pressures that, that really curtail the ability of Palestinians to exert agency. I mean, not, not completely yes. sort of removed of agency, of course, but it strikes me that there are these, these structural forces that limit the capacity for agency. And how do they fit together then? Uh, do you mean the international and the kind of yeah. on the ground? Yeah, so exactly. So basically, in the in in the book, um, I I outlined, you know, um, through a variety of methods, um, how international involvement and particularly American involvement and and intervention um, changed the preferences and the objectives of Palestinian leadership. And so, even when you have um, you know, Palestinian leadership and some high levels uh, of, of, of particular ministries or, or in the leader, you know, in the, in the political party leadership, um, even if they have, you know, specific objectives or they have specific, uh, uh, you know, I would say, uh, I don't know if the word is patriotic or nationalistic um, objectives, um, they still had to contort themselves to avoid particular types of interventions on, on, you know, vis-a-vis the United States. Hmm. And the United States very much set the standard for how other donors also interacted with the Palestinian Authority. And so over time, what happened is that there's this this uh, political leadership that's supposed to be accountable to its public um, in some way, or at least representative of their, you know, will and demands, is now completely divorced from that public. And, and really, so I characterize it as a principal agent problem in the book, really the, the, uh, the Palestinian Authority has a different principle, which is the international uh, donor, and particularly the United States. And they have to answer to them. So, so there's that. Yeah. And then because of those dynamics, um, I outline in the book how uh, it affected security sector reform, it affected how the Palestinians you know, uh, authority actually operated on the ground. Um, what that happened is that it led to the Palestinian Authority becoming much more repressive and uh, authoritarian um, because they felt that they, like, part of it was they felt that they needed to be. Um, and obviously with that kind of repression, and I characterize it as different from Israeli repression because it's coming from an indigenous source, like it's coming from your own leadership, um, it had a, you know, a very uh, uh, damaging impact on uh, Palestinian political mobilization. 
Sure. I mean, you've just said that that it felt that they had to do this. They had to move down a more oppressive, more authoritarian route. Why was that? So, um, a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that, very simply, um, uh, the international donors, and particularly the United States, would intervene if um, they attempted to exert any kind of agency on how they functioned. Um, so, take for example, like training programs for bureaucrats. Um, if the Palestinian Authority leadership would attempt to make these training programs a little bit reflective of Palestinian reality and Palestinian objectives, um, the, the donors would always intervene. Uh, and, uh, you know, they would outline what the training could be about. Um, they would outline who could attend the trainings. They would veto people who... Uh, you know, they felt were problematic. They can't, you know, they, we, don't, we don't want them to get higher up in the, in the bureaucracy or attend these kinds of trainings or there were forced retirements. There's all sorts of these kinds of practical ways that they can get involved. But also there was kind of a, like a, like a shift, like uh, uh, in terms of like personal uh, uh, beliefs and preferences. So you, you know, especially after 2006 and after the, the parliamentary elections in which the Palestinian Authority um, was, you know, kind of pressured into uh, going through with elections, and then Fatah, the um, you know the, the the political party that was in charge of the Palestinian Authority, lost uh, uh, to, to a plurality in the parliament to Hamas, and once that happened, the international donors intervened um, and and basically. Uh, punish the Palestinian Authority for something they felt like, okay, well, you wanted the democratic process and now you don't want to respect the outcome. Right. So what happened with people who witnessed that is genuinely there's now like an attempt to assuage like the cognitive dissonance that they have, which is to say, okay, well, that, you know, we, we must not be ready for democracy because we, as we, you know, a certain portion of the Palestinian population wanted to vote for Islamists. And Islamists aren't compatible with democracy, like there's no way, so clearly we're not ready for democracy. Or there's this attempt to characterize political opponents as like way more extreme than they actually are. Well, you know, there's, there's, you know, they tell me there's nothing, there's no, no, nothing distinguishing um, between Hamas and ISIS. Like they're the same. They're, right. they're, you know, these people who vote for Hamas, they're like ISIS. So it's just like... They're attempting to kind of like make excuses for themselves as to why we can't listen to Palestinian society. But really, yeah. when you get down to it, you know, through the interviews and stuff, like when you when you talk to talk through them, it's like, well, how can we pursue democracy when when they don't want to respect it? Sure. Or when we're going to face issues if we respect it. So it, it strikes me that that there's a range of different things happening here, right? And. Uh, it, it all of which seems to have a, a pretty devastating impact on, on Palestinians themselves and Palestinian agency in the face of this. But I wonder if you can say a little bit about that, Dana, and also how the, the PA situated itself within the context of, of these changing international pressures and, and the Israeli state as well. Because it strikes me that there's, there's some interesting, if, if deeply depressing stuff going on in that regard which has, of course, again, a damning impact for the, the Palestinian population itself. Yeah, so, you know, when you, when you do these, when I did these interviews with, with, with Palestinian leadership or bureaucrats and certain ministries and things like that, um, it's, it strikes you as very odd because 
you'll find them and they'll catch themselves talking about, you know, their objectives as being shared, you know, in line with Israeli objectives and in line with American objectives. Um, and what I mean by that is that, like, basically they they start to th- they start to talk about a we, and the we is not you know Palestinian leadership and Palestinian society. The we is Palestinian leadership and the Israeli leadership and the American leadership. Right. And, and they, because Israeli um, Israeli interests are always you know they always triumph and they always are the uh, you know, the, the main objective of the international donors, really. Especially the American donors, we can yeah. say. Um, so, at the end of the day, they feel there's like this conforming to their positions where, okay, to do our job, which our job is to coordinate security with Israel, and our job is to make sure that nothing arises that Israel finds threatening for the sake of this so-called peace process. So then, we are aligning ourselves with Israel and with and with their objectives in the West Bank, right. So again, it's that it's that marginalization of of Palestinian peoples, which is deeply, deeply depressing. And yes. <laughs> Donna, just I, I have some questions about the extrapolation of these findings. But before we get on to that, can you just tell us a little bit about about the process of this? Then, how many people did you interview, and and what sort of peoples were you talking to here? So the book relies um, on a couple of different uh, points of data. The interviews um, were about 35 interviews, um, give or take, and um, some of them were leadership in uh, Fatah, and some of them were um, kind of like, I don't know, the word is not over management, but um, like leadership positions in particular ministries, particularly the interior ministry. Um, and, uh, people in, uh, the Palestinian police. So I, I tried to kind of, um, you know, get access to as many, uh, institutions that, um, have to do with this security coordination dynamic as possible. Um, but I also relied on, uh, a nationally representative survey. Right. Um, uh, and I relied on a protest data set that I, uh, put together, um, as well as, um, particular uh, laboratory experiments and, and, and uh, um, interviews with activists and things like that. Sure. Okay. Uh, I'd like to just talk a little bit about the uh, the extrapolation of, of these findings for, for different cases. Because I know you've, d- you've done some work on authoritarianism and, and international support for authoritarianism in different cases. I'm thinking of your work on, on Kurdistan. So can you share a, a, a few remarks about how how these findings uh, can be applied across different case studies, please? Yeah, um, so basic, like, I think the basic takeaway, I mean, Palestine is a very unique case. Um, it's, it's because it's under occupation, it's like you said, we're, it's dealing with a number of structural uh, um, issues. Um, so, you know, some of the things I say are Palestine-specific. But... At the same time, the Arab world, um, more generally, has a lot of international involvement, and particularly American involvement. Now, what my my research doesn't talk about, like um, how international involvement from different parties can have an impact. Um, so I haven't really looked at that aspect yet. 
Um, but my research thus far has looked at how particularly American involvement has an impact on, on uh, you know, certain dynamics in the Arab world. Um, so I've done work, for example, on U.S. military basing right. um, and its impact on uh, you know, state-society relations in those countries. I've looked at international involvement in national liberation movements. You mentioned Kurdistan, and, and uh, I did a comparison between the PLO and, and uh, um, you know, the Kurdish parties. So um, the basic takeaway is that international involvement specifically in places that are really important to the United States um, and important to the United States in the sense that they're strategically important, right? Um, but also in places where the United States doesn't think public opinion will support them. It becomes important, indeed it becomes imperative, that um, the United States facilitates unrepresentative representative uh, um, uh, governments and, and, and institutions. Right. Um, and and but this is not only my conjecture. Um, you know, very uh, amazing scholars have already done some work on this, like Amani Jamal's uh, book um, on the Empires and Citizens looks at kind of the same dynamics, which is like, you know, it, in places where public opinion might not be... Uh, um, uh, pro the United States, then democracy becomes untenable. Um, sure. Andrew Stravers also looks at this dynamic, um, not just in the Middle East, about how military basing uh, be becomes kind of uh, uh, forced upon particular societies um, in strategically uh, important areas um, when um, the publics in those areas don't support the United States. And so that's the takeaway, really. The Palestine case, for me, um, corroborates all of this evidence that we have from, from other parts of the world and, 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 and uh, you know, other, dy other dynamics of international involvement, which is to say this proves international involvement, particularly in the Arab world, has this very, uh, you know, uh, divisive impact, and it has this um, impact on regimes that basically it divorces them from their publics. Um, and another takeaway, I would say, from the Palestine case is also this linkage between the impact of repression and polarization. Right. Um, and so I look in the, in, in the book about how the Palestinian authorities' conduct and increasing authoritarianism, particular forms of repression, was able to polarize Palestinian society in a way that Israeli occupation never did. Sure. And I would say that that does translate in other parts of the Arab world, where we see in Egypt... And we see in, 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 in other places where when these governments have repressed particular sections of the population that has polarized, um, you know, leaderships of, of different political parties and things like that has made it much, has made it where, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit <laughs> has made it where um, these, these different political groups are unable to coordinate in the face of, of authoritarian regimes. And we saw this play out in Egypt. Yeah. Um, as an example, it it strikes me that that there's a, a real sort of crisis point right now for for agency across uh, well across the world more broadly, but for our inquiry for agency in the Middle East with all of these these structural forces that are operating and and the rise of authoritarianism, the the ways in which political elites are embedding themselves within sort of broader socioeconomic, political, geopolitical structures. And, and what, you've just, what you've just discussed kind of supports that thesis. So 
Hey, I, I wonder, this is quite a broad question, so please forgive me, Dana, but, but what hope is there for agency in all of this, do you think? Well, I feel like um, there's always a hope. Um, and if we, first as academics, are able to translate some of our findings in a way that's you know, readable, consumable, um, and accessible to you know, the public, we do our job there. Um, but also, you know, um, new political leadership and, 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 and uh, uh, basically the young generations um, in, in across the Arab world and in particular uh, political parties and things like that, if they could learn from these lessons, there's always this, you know, uh, there's always the ability to undo um, these dynamics. Like if we know that repression has had this impact and has polarized us in this way. Um, and that's why we know that this is why uh, our, you know, for example, in, in the Palestine case, our political leadership is unable to coordinate with each other and unable to face the Israeli occupation. Well, that means like for younger generations, that's the, 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 the objective here then is to coordinate across political divides. Then it becomes sure. you know, your choice to be able to do that. Um, of course, I'm, I'm not downplaying that repression exists and authoritarian regimes are becoming incredibly savvy and how they control uh, dissent, whether it's through the internet, whether it's through social media, the, the, you know, the, 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 the web of control only tightens. But at the same time, there are these opportunities, there are these political openings. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, resistance, political resistance, and people who are involved in political resistance need to be ready for those opportunities by not repeating and replicating the problems um, yeah. that, ha you know, that have happened in the past. So Egyptians, um, for example, the, the political leadership of, of, of uh, um, you know, um, Egyptian society needs to recognize what happened in 2013 and try to, to move beyond that and try to address the, 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 the regime in different ways. Um, I always, I mean, maybe I'm, I don't know, overly optimistic or, or naively optimistic, but I always feel like there is some way that we can try to challenge uh, the dynamics if we can understand them first. And I, I think the Palestinian cause is, is perhaps one of the best examples of, of ongoing resistance and challenging the, um, the, the different structural forces at play, I guess. Definitely. Definitely. Um, Dana, we've taken up so much of your time already and it's been absolutely fascinating. I really can't wait for the book to, to come out and when it does, I urge everyone to, to get hold of a copy from all good bookstores and also some of the online ones as well. So, Dana, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been our pleasure. Good luck with everything. Good luck with the book. And I hope everything goes well there. Thank you, as always, everyone, for listening. And until next time, thank you.